Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. First of all, I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I and most of us are meeting today, the peoples of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. The PLN recognises and emphasises that asylum seekers are not the only group of people subject to undue incarceration, and that much to the contrary, based on the best international data available, Indigenous Australians represent the most incarcerated people on earth. We all carry an obligation to do what we can, where we can, to change the culture in our political and legal system that is reluctant to be reformed and so often feigns interest in giving weight to the voices of Aboriginal people in achieving their equality within Australian society. So thank you everyone for joining us this evening. We're very lucky to have with us special guest, Julian Burnside. Um, and we will begin by uh, asking Julian a few questions in relation to his background and his career. Um, and then we will go on to our discussion on Australian refugee policy and its future. So Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Good evening. Um, thank you, Tristan. I was going to say in your acknowledgement of the traditional owners of the land, I think it's worth recognising that it's our ancestors who took the land from them. It caused them immense damage and we then redoubled the damage by taking the children from them. Mate, look, look around too what the Aboriginal people look like now. Maybe it's our fault. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Julian. So my first question is, what sparked your interest in pursuing a career in human rights law and uh, refugee and immigration policy? It really has to be answered in two parts, because to be honest, I didn't know anything much about refugee law or refugee treatment until... Uh, I did the Tampa case. But before that, I mean, the reason I did law at Monash was actually as a result of a series of accidents. Um, I did better at year 12 than anyone expected. And I got offered places in, I think, four or five different faculties at Melbourne and Monash. They were the only universities around at the time. And um, I, um, I got offered a place at Monash Law. Uh, it was a very new faculty then. And um, I, a former boyfriend of my sister was doing law at Monash. So I thought, well, I'll do that because then at least I'll know someone. And uh, so I did law at Monash. As it turns out, I never saw him. Um, now, the, the thing about law at Monash back then is, um, back then and maybe now, I'm not sure, mooting was voluntary and uh, nerds tended to do it. So I gravitated to it, did quite a lot of it. And in my second last year, I think, I uh, was invited to be part of the Monash InterVarsity mooting team for the Ansel's mooting competition, which that year was going to be in Auckland. Now I'd never even been to Tasmania. So the idea of a free trip to New Zealand was spectacular. Um, now, in my second year, I think it was, I picked up an economics degree because I thought it would be quite good to be a management consultant, which was the occupation du jour back then. And um, as it happens, I won the Blackstone Cup 
has the best individual speaker in the final moot. And um, the Chief Justice of New Zealand, who judged, who'd been chairing the final moot, um, was talking about the drinks prize giving thing at the end of it. And he asked me what I was planning to do. So I said, well, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of being a management consultant. And he said, you should go to the bar. Um, that was my career planning. That's why I decided to be a lawyer. Um, it only occurred to me a few years ago, it'd be funny if what he really had in mind was I should go and get another drink of another glass of wine. <laughs> but uh, whatever, I mean, I like the idea that my career might have been founded on a misunderstanding as well as an accident. But um, anyway, so at, in Christmas, at Christmas that year, one of the other members of the team gave me the Irving Stone biography of Clarence Darrow, which really turned me on. Clarence Darrow is an American advocate well worth reading about. Uh, he was prominent in the last decade of the 19th century and the first few decades of the 20th century. He did some spectacular cases. He's really, really worth following. He pursued causes, one of the most notorious of which was he wanted to get rid of capital punishment. And so with that in mind, he set up the Scopes monkey trial. Um, he was also counsel for the accused in the um, Leopold and Loeb murder trial. Um, and it really, his, what he did made me think, oh, wow, you know, you could really do some great things being an advocate. Um, but because I had an economics degree and I had done accounting and majored in accounting and so on, uh, it was pretty easy with figures. Once I got to the bar, I found myself doing work for the tax office and then that blended into the um, takeovers boom of the early 80s. And um, so I was doing, I was doing um, commercial work really for all my life, except, except that I still had the memory of Clarence Darrow and what he had done. And um, in when the Tampa thing happened, you, you're all probably not even born when Tampa happened. You may have heard of the case, but anyway, the Tampa was a Norwegian cargo ship. Um, it was traveling from west to east across the top of Australia when um, the Australian government, led then by John Howard, um, uh, learned that a, a people smuggler boat carrying refugees had fallen apart in the Indian Ocean. And so Howard's government contacted the captain of the Tampa and said, look, you're going that way. Will you keep an eye out for this and pick them up? Um, so he did. And I spoke to the captain of the Tampa later. He said when he saw the boat, he thought there might have been 50 people on board. He threw a rope ladder over the side and was amazed when 438 people climbed up the rope ladder onto the steel decks of the Tampa. Now, they were all stuck on the steel decks of the Tampa. This is the north of Australia, almost on the equator. And um, a bloke I had just done a commercial case for thought of a really interesting case theory and asked me if I would act pro bono for the refugees on the Tampa. Um, now, as I said earlier, I really didn't know anything about refugee policy or practice. And so I 
said yes, but I said yes, not because of concern for the refugees exactly, but because from childhood I've always felt the heat very badly. And I thought they must be miserable being there. Anyway, because I did the case, I met a lot of people who knew a lot about refugees and I learned a whole lot of stuff during that case that really made me uncomfortable. I thought it was not consistent with the way Australia was. And um, so I acted for the refugees on the Tampa. And uh, interestingly, and not many people know this, but the Tampa episode was really set up by John Howard, who was looking doubtful about his electoral prospects because he had to have an election by the end of November that year, and he was looking very shaky. As it happens, um, he, he must have tapped something about Australian attitudes because he um, sailed in with a huge majority uh, in the November election that year. Um, I like to think that it's not because... Australians agree with what has been done, but because um, we were all lied to about what was going on. What people don't know about the Tampa case is that the trial judgment, in our favour, I have to say, uh, was handed down by the judge in Melbourne at 2.15 in the afternoon on the 11th of September 2001. Eight or nine hours later, the attack on America happened. Now, all of the people... All of the terrorists who attacked America on 9-11 um, were Muslim. And in Australian diction, that became a story that all Muslims were terrorists and that all boat people were Muslim, which are not true. But I think all the people rescued by the Tampa were Muslim. Um, and therefore, all terrorists. And that's when John Howard started calling boat people illegal and uh, cobbled together the Pacific Solution which, uh, when you think about it, does really shocking things. Uh, so that, that, that's the accidental path by which I came to be, A, a barrister, and B, involved in human rights, specifically refugees. So you see Tampa then as a watershed moment, both in your career and in the attitudes towards refugees in Australia? A absolutely. Um, I mean, in 1992 the Keating government had introduced um, mandatory detention of boat people, but it was not really used that much. Um, and I, I know a couple of people who were in that parliament uh, and belonged to the Labor Party and who never imagined that the uh, mandatory detention system would be used the way it came to be used. Um, and... I'm inclined to believe that because when I was at university and afterwards, we had a lot of Vietnamese refugees coming to Australia and they were all treated, they were made welcome, they were treated well and I think most people now are very happy that we've got Vietnamese people in our midst. Uh, it was actually Cambodian refugees who triggered Keating's introduction of mandatory detention in 92, but even then, I don't think that there, there weren't enough boat people coming for anyone to be worried about it. And 
really what Howard did was political opportunism. And he, and he lied to people about it. I mean, think about this. The Australia Pacific Solution involved the use of Nauru, which is a small independent nation island in the central Pacific. Um, Nauru's land area is less than Tullamarine Airport. So the idea that they could manage refugees that we couldn't is just ludicrous. But of course, most Australians have never heard that fact because it's not something the government talks about. Thank you, Julian, for that great insight into the beginning of your uh, time as a barrister representing refugees. Um, and that gives us a really good background, I think, to the last or the beginning of the last 20 years in what has been um, a very contentious period in refugee policy in Australia. Um, let's, let's now fast forward to the present and look at some contemporary challenges. So what do you think is the most important issue in Australian refugee policy right now? Um, I think the, pr it's the, the most important issue is whether we ought to mistreat them or whether we should recognise that they're human beings. Um, the, it's interesting that um, the government, in its flip-flopping about what's the justification of the policy, they make the point that a lot of people drown in their attempt to get to Australia, and that is true. Um, but a few years ago, a bloke called Omid Masamali, who was in Nauru with his wife and children, they'd been recognised as refugees by the Nauruan system and um, they, they were told by the Nauruan government that there probably wasn't any other country for them to go to for a fair time and that they'd have to live in the community in Nauru. Now, you have to know that the Nauruan locals are very hostile to anyone who comes from anywhere else other than Nauru. And so the refugees get treated very badly in Nauru. The Nauruans only take refugees because of the money that we throw at them. Um, anyway, uh, Ahmed Masamali was told that he'd probably have to live in the community for a few years. And that idea was so desperate to him that he took some, I think, lighter fluid or petrol, doused himself with it in a public area and set fire to himself and he died. And um, Kathy Wilcox, who I think is one of our best cartoonists, did a cartoon uh, very soon afterwards, which was a simple, very simple drawing of a man engulfed in flames. And the caption simply read, not drowning. So our cruelty... Our cruelty to refugees is the question on which I think it's the most important issue in relation to Australia's refugee policy. Um, well, there are much, much better ways of dealing. What people don't realise is the number of refugees who come to Australia. We have um, three streams of refugees coming to Australia. One is uh, the people who are handpicked by Australians from refugee camps in other countries. And it's a brilliant system. We should be very proud of it. Um, 
they're brought to Australia as refugees. They help settle in the community, and it's terrific. The second group are people who come to Australia uh, by aeroplane for uh, tourism, business, study, whatever. And um, because they come from countries which are not notorious for generating refugees, they can get business, tourism or study visas to come to Australia. Once they clear passport control, they apply for asylum. Um, but because they've arrived with a visa, they're not quote-unquote illegal and they're allowed to live in the community. Most Australians are totally blissfully unaware of their existence, much less their presence in the community. Um, and the third group are people who come from countries where it's virtually impossible to get a refugee or to get a visa to come to Australia. And so instead of paying a couple of thousand dollars for a good seat in an aeroplane, they pay six or eight thousand dollars to a to a people smuggler for a very uncomfortable journey in a boat like the Palapa, which had the hamper refugees on it. Um, because they don't have visas, because they couldn't get visas, they come to Australia and as soon as they arrive, they are put into detention. Um, interestingly, the aeroplane people succeed in their asylum claims in between 30 and 40% of cases. The boat people succeed in their asylum claims in more than 90% of cases, so that we punish the ones who probably are refugees and we're indifferent to the ones who are probably not. Now, if anyone can make sense of that, I'd be fascinated. But it strikes me as being insane. So I think the most important issue in our treatment of refugees at the moment is what is this what is the Australian character? What are we about? You know, are we actually about inflicting deliberate intentional cruelty on people who've done absolutely nothing wrong? Are we really a country that would willingly lie about these people by calling them illegal, treating them like criminals? And we've now got people in detention in Australia, people who arrived in Australia after the middle of 2013 and were sent off to Manus or Nauru, people who've been medevac to Australia under the now repealed medevac legislation. Um, they are brought to Australia for medical treatment, put into detention. And so we've got people in Australia in immigration detention, people who've never committed any offence at all, who've been in detention at Australia's bidding for seven to nine years. Now, I thought, I hoped that when Victoria especially experienced a major lockdown because of the coronavirus last year, that maybe attitudes in Victoria at least to locking up innocent people might shift. So far as I'm aware, they haven't moved in the slightest. So we just continue to mistreat innocent human beings merely because they came here seeking protection from persecution of a sort which we can scarcely imagine. And that's, um, so that's, I think, the probably the biggest issue in the refugee area at the moment is how do we square our treatment of refugees with our national character as we understand it? 
And that raises a whole lot of difficult questions like how do we get the media to be honest about what's going on? Because until the media is honest about it, the government will not be honest about it, and they are not. Especially, especially Scott Morrison, our beloved Prime Minister, when he was Immigration Minister, Scott Morrison insisted on calling them illegals and tried to introduce an amendment to the Migration Act so that they would be called illegal as a matter of law. Now, anyone who has to lie that much has got a real problem, and frankly, I think he's a pathetic Prime Minister. Thank you, Julian. Um, I find that issue as to national character very interesting, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll move the next question to kind of follow uh, on with that idea. Um, for example, in I found it interesting that in your film, Border Politics, uh, which, which you start in, in 2018, you observed that in Scotland, the, the very positive attitude taken towards refugees there uh, is seen to be an expression of the character of the Scottish people. That is, they are, uh, they are open and they are warm and welcoming. Um, and this, this, uh, the expression of this belief maintains the character of the Scottish people as they understand their country to be. Yeah. And one of the Scottish people in that film actually goes so far as saying these are human beings. Would you, do you ever hear any Australian politician speak like that? Um, of course, the Scottish part of that film was done before they took me to Jordan. Uh, and Jordan was an even better example of the same idea. Jordan has difficult geography because it's got Israel, Palestine on the west, it's got Iraq on the east, and it's got Syria on the north. And so depending on... Um, global politics at the time, they have refugees walking, not, not sailing, but walking across the border, seeking protection. When I was there, and Jordan, by the way, is not a rich country. It does not have oil, um, despite its location. Um, when I was there, uh, I, was, I spent a few days at a place called Zatari in the north of Jordan, um, a few kilometres from the Syrian border. At the time I was there, there were one million Syrian refugees, people who'd walked across the border looking for a safe place to, to exist. There were one million of them living in the Jordanian community, allowed to work. Um, and at Zatari, there is a... Oh, I nearly said detention centre, it's not. It's a refugee camp, which is run by, set up by the UN and the Jordanian government and it's a refugee camp as I say not a detention centre because people are free to come and go as they like its record population was I think 130 or 140,000 people but when I was there there were like 80,000 or 90,000 um, the camp at Zatari provides free accommodation for refugees, especially refugees who come across the border from Syria. Um, it, because of the number of people there, there's a lot of, a lot of refugees have set up shops um, where they can sell stuff. Um, these are shops 
uh, created by refugees and run by refugees. Um, and what was interesting about it is that amongst all the shops there, along the main, the main track through the Zatari camp is called the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> it, it couldn't be less like the Champs-Élysées, the original Champs-Élysées, but they call it that out of fun, I think. And amongst other things, amongst other shops set up by refugees in the camp at Zatari, uh, there is a shop where you can hire bridal gowns. People actually get, they still have enough hope for the future that they get married while they're in the refugee camp at Zatari. And that is something which is almost unthinkable in Australian detention centres. Yeah, it's quite incredible. Um, and so, so just going back to this issue on Australian identity, it, I find it quite interesting that Australians seem to have this belief that, um, that Australian society is founded on values such as mateship and the egalitarianism that that entails. Um, but that, that similar belief, as we were saying before, is held by the Scottish people. How, how is it that these values find such different expression in each country's refugee policies? Well, I must say, and I, I'm sorry if this is contentious, but I actually think it's because we are led by dishonest politicians who are prepared to lie about this fact and they do not get corrected because the Murdoch press, when you think about it, uh, is crawling up the present right-wing government and they do not contradict it. It's virtually impossible, and I discovered this the hard way, it's virtually impossible to get the truth about refugees um, published in the Murdoch press. Now, most people get their news from the Murdoch press and if all they hear is the government saying illegals, illegals, um, and the Murdoch press never contradicts them, well, of course, what are people going to think? Now, we don't have a problem with the idea of people in prisons because if they've been convicted of a crime, fine. Lock them up if you have to. Um, it's just... And it's not really surprising in Australia that we think that prisons are a, an acceptable idea. Uh, but locking up people who have never been charged, have never been convicted, have never even committed an offence, that's very different. And, of course, people like Peter Dutton, who was one of the, one of the worst um, immigration ministers we've ever seen, Peter Dutton... Um, actually refers to boat, has referred to boat people as rapists, terrorists, murderers. There's no evidence of any of those things, none at all. But, you know, if you're waiting for the Murdoch press to cross-examine people like Dutton or Morrison, forget it. It's not going to happen. So I, my, my hope, I have to say, my hope for the future is that your generation is likely to stir the government into holding a Royal Commission. It'll be after I'm dead, but, you know, it'll be great because, it, and I think while there is a Royal Commission into our treatment of refugees right now, people will go around wringing their hands saying, how on earth could we have done that? What on earth was going on? What were we thinking? And um, 
I hope your generation, when you get into positions of power, can provoke a uh, Royal Commission like that. And I hope that my prediction is right, that, you, that you'll get people wondering why on earth we behaved like this, because I can't think of any good reason for us to behave like this. Thank you, Julian. Um, I'll just mention now that we, we do want this event to be um, open and uh, interactive. So if anyone does have a question about something that Julian raises, just uh, raise your hand and I'll, um, I'll then give you a cue to ask the question once the time comes. We will be also having a Q&A session at the end of this um, where you can also ask any questions then, but do feel free to raise your hand uh, at any stage so that uh, your question can be heard. Unless your name is Peter Dutton. Or oh, actually, I, I'd be very glad to get a question from Peter Dutton because <laughs> I might have a few in reply. <laughs> uh, just so you know, we did contact Home Affairs to see if they would uh, get anyone to represent um, them at this event. So and? We, we, we heard back from the Minister for Immigration and he sends his regards, but unfortunately he couldn't make it. What a pity. <laughs> so uh, let's, let's move now to this um, recent case involving the Tamil family from Biloela. Um, so the full federal court rejected the government's attempts to have the Tamil family seeking asylum deported due to a lack of procedural fairness. However, this seemed to be done without a clear legal standard and merely because the court thought the government's actions were Kafkaesque. Do you think this represents a shift in the court's uh, approach towards being critical of the government's actions and desiring greater respect of human dignity? Could there be further implications flowing from this case? Um, I, I don't think there's been a shift in the court's attitude to refugees. On, on the contrary, I think the court has in most cases, um, been very genuinely Australian in its attitude to our treatment of refugees. And um, to be honest, the federal court, or the full federal court, um, it has delivered some terrific judgments. The high court um, says it's a little more difficult, but a lot of asylum cases win in the High Court. Um, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which deals with most of them at first instance, has recently been stacked by the, um, by the present government, so it's more challenging. But uh, the judges in the federal court, I think, recognise... I mean, they're human beings too. You know, I, I know it's amazing as law students to think that judges might be human beings, but... They are. And um, my impression, right or wrong, is that a lot of them really wonder why the government is behaving the way it is. And they always, they always deliver their judgments. So far as I can see, they deliver judgments that give effect to proper legal principle. Um, they always decide according to the law they do not, in my opinion, allow human emotion to sway them. But ideas like the rule of law obviously are sufficiently general because the politicians haven't yet got their hands on it. Um, 
although I think Chester Porter had a bit of a crack at it recently. Um, but the the idea of the rule of law is an important one and um, natural justice is obviously something that is important. And if you're inclined to do something to try and help asylum seekers, then and don't forget, in that Bilawila family, the two young girls, I think, were born in Australia. So calling them illegals is astonishing. And I think they're the ones who didn't get natural justice. And it's really hard to think of any expression other than Kafkaesque uh, to describe the attitude of a government that would take children who were born in Australia and remove them and send them uh, back to Sri Lanka or send them to Sri Lanka for, for the first time in their life. Yes. And if anyone is wondering what the court means by calling this Kafkaesque, I highly recommend reading The Castle by Franz Kafka. <laughs> uh, you'll get a good idea of what they're talking about. Um, so, I mean, this is an interesting issue on the, the different systems uh, at play that, that can affect refugee decisions. There is the federal court, um, but what do you see uh, the significance of the administrative appeals tribunal to be in, in all of this? Um, uh, the significance um, of it is that um, first instance cases typically have to go to the AAT in its migration jurisdiction because the federal court has been excluded from it. And so the appeal from the AAT goes to the full federal court. Okay. Um, let's talk about this. Well, we might actually just go to a question from Benjamin Rax. Hey there. Uh, Julian, if you could please, uh, if you've been following the case of AJL 20, which is a federal court decision um, heard in September last year um, on one of the Medivac refugees on appeal to the High Court, I believe, in April. Um, and I was wondering if you had any insight or um, opinion as to how you think that might go in the High Court, especially considering the most recent um, appointments to the High Court um, with two um, judges that have been um, described as black letter and conservative. Um, to, be, to be honest, Benjamin, I'm sorry, I don't know the case and I do not know what arguments are going to be run in the special leave application. So I can't predict the outcome. Is it going for special leave or has it got special leave and it's going on appeal? Um, I believe it's already gotten special leave, but um, the crux of that case was um, surrounding a habeas corpus claim that was um, successful in the federal court. Uh, well, the short answer is I, I don't know the facts of the case, so I can't answer your question. I don't know how it will go. No problem, that's all right. I guess just in general then, um, how are your hopes for um, future refugee or migration cases heard in the High Court, um, considering the most recent appointments? If you have any views or insights on that? Well, I'll make a general statement um, rather than deal with a specific question. My general observation of the courts from my time in practice uh, is that even though there's plenty of decisions that I don't like, 
I've never been aware of a judge who was anything but honest. So black letter law, whatever. You know, they, they, they decide a case according to their understanding of the law and that's their job. So I think, I think we are, Australia is very well served by its judges. I mean, there's, there's a couple of judges in Queensland in the Supreme Court who've been booted out because they were dishonest. But putting them to one side, I think we are very well served by our judiciary. Yeah, thank you for that. Thanks, Ben. Great questions. Um, so let's now move to the, the effect of COVID-19 on current refugee arrangements. Uh, there was a COVID-19 pandemic visa that is subclass 408 that was introduced last year uh, and it was aimed at migrants who are working in critical sectors or are unable to return to their home country due to COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, do you think that this could have any effect on refugee policy going forward? I, I doubt that it will. Um, I've I got to say, I, I've thought about COVID-19 quite a bit for obvious reasons. Uh, it seems to me that it raises some very interesting difficulties. Um, the first is that across the world... Um, with the one exception of America, uh, governments treated COVID-19 very seriously. Um, now, COVID-19 threatens the lives of, what, a couple of percent of the population? A few percent, maybe, tops? I have not heard parliamentarians in any country, much less Australia, speak out plainly about the dangers of climate change. Climate change, which threatens the lives of 100% of us. Um, so why? Why the concentration on COVID-19 and not on climate change? And I suspect that the answer to that rhetorical question is um, the politicians will be uh, long gone by the time climate change really starts hitting home. At least or they hope that. But I think... Whilst COVID-19 may or may not have an effect on, um, on refugees, actually it might have, a, might have a bad effect because people who've been refused refugee status can be detained um, under the legislation. They're put in detention and remain in detention until they get a visa or until they're removed from the country. Now, if COVID stops them from being removed from the country, then it might simply have the effect of prolonging their time in detention. Whether they would be eligible for a COVID-19 visa is an interesting question, but um, on the government's current attitudes, the answer to that is probably no. Uh, I, I think we need to worry much more about the consequences of climate change and in particular climate change is not only not only represents a serious threat to the survival of the human species it is undoubtedly going to generate a flow of refugees who will come to this country amongst others because they need somewhere where they can survive the fact that they're escaping climate change 
probably doesn't make them refugees, but it does mean that they'll be on the move. They'll be looking for somewhere where they can be, somewhere they can survive. And um, at the moment, I think our government really ought to think about adjusting to the fact that people from other cultures will come here and we need to do what we can to treat them like human beings. So we are now uh, looking into the future of Australian refugee policy. Um, I suppose, I mean, the, the convention relating to the status of refugees that Australia has been a party to since 1954, um, do you see any possibility of Australia ever uh, seeking to withdraw from that treaty? I mean, this was a conversation that was had in around 2013, I believe. There, were, there was the argument made that Australia does not, uh, or at least at that time, was clearly not fulfilling its obligations under the treaty. And if Australia claims to be uh, an international uh, citizen and a, a a member of the community of nations, why does it enter into these treaty arrangements when it clearly does not intend to follow through with them? What do you think of that argument? And should Australia withdraw from the treaty? No, absolutely not. Um, It's very odd that the government tends to take its central obligation under the Refugees Convention fairly seriously. The central commitment under the Refugees Convention is non-reformant. Reformant is the law French word meaning send a person back to a place where they may be persecuted. Sending them back can either be direct or indirect. So the non-reformant obligation means you don't send a refugee to the country they came from or to a country which might return them to the country they came from. Now, to my observation, our government does not send refugees away. If a person is assessed as a refugee, uh, the government may find ways to keep them in detention, but it will not send them back to their country of origin. It doesn't even send them back to places like Indonesia, which hasn't signed the Refugees Convention. And so sending them back to Indonesia would be indirect reformant. Um, So I think as long as we are part of that convention, it does some good. I think, though, you know, just picking up on your point, Tristan, it's worth bearing in mind, through Australia uh, joined the Refugees Convention in '54. there's a, a, what I would say is a more important international convention document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was... Was, was Eleanor Roosevelt's great project um, after the end of the Second World War. And uh, Australia, even though back then we had a population of, I think, seven, seven and a half million people, we were a very small country. Um, Australia contributed very significantly to the formulation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And when it was embraced by the world community, in the United Nations, the General Assembly of the United Nations, on the 10th of December 1948, so well before we signed the Refugees Convention, um, the General Assembly was presided over by an Australian, Doc Evatt. Um, So Australia has a very significant 
involvement in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it's worth, if I, if I can be allowed just to quote some passages from the preamble, it starts off, you know, whereas, 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 about 10 times. But the first three paragraphs are important. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. Whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind and the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people. And whereas it's essential if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resource to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. So those are the first three paragraphs of the Universal Declaration of Man. They really are worth remembering. And it's worth bearing in mind, I think the, sec the second uh, whereas is probably is probably a reflection of the American um, the American Bill of Rights or part of it. Um, it's also worth remembering that Article 14 of the Universal Declaration says that all human beings have the right to seek asylum. Now, now of course, the Universal Declaration was the product of the Second World War and uh, it reflected you know, the barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind it was obviously a reference to what had been done to the Jews before and during the Second World War, before there was a refugees convention. You know, Jews fleeing um, Germany in the 1930s ran the risk of being sent back because the idea of a refugee was not noticed or was not widely accepted by the human by the world community um, it's, it's interesting though in um, when was the Denira the Denira was a ship which came to Australia I think it was after the end of the Second World War but I, I'm having to correct on that um, the Denira came to Australia with hundreds of Jewish refugees on board and Australia put them in detention. We actually put them and we're, you know, the, the descendants of those people are seriously important contributors to Australian community at the moment. So anyway, uh, so, but I think, I think, I think the universal declaration shows uh, that we have always at least nodded to the importance of the inherent dignity and equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human race. So your argument is that uh, the, the Universal Declaration of Rights is a more important document uh, for Australia than this, the treaty relating to the status of refugees is. Even though, I, I, mean, I suppose the declaration is a resolution of the UN General Assembly, isn't that? correct it is so it's not binding at international law is no it? but uh, i mean internationally the refugees convention isn't binding either i mean it doesn't bind in australian law because you know if you if you go to the high court and you start arguing about the content of international 
conventions, you'll be asked very politely to move on to something that has its, its feet in Australian law. Which is because the High Court or any court in Australia will not apply international law that is not enacted in Australian law. Yeah, that's right. But in the international legal framework, a, a country who signs a treaty is bound to apply its terms in its domestic legal system. Is that, is that wrong? Um, I think that's right. And uh, so that, that may be the government's excuse for stepping out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. Mind you, as a statement of principle, it's hard to do better than the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and it is probably worth recognising Australia's contribution to it because that shows you something about what we are about, I hope. Okay. So I wonder... By, by the way, by the way, um, you know, much, much and all as we may think that we acknowledge our commitments under various international treaties, the fact is that we are probably in breach of the Convention Against Torture all the time because of the way we treat people in immigration detention. Which obviously leads to very serious consequences in the international sphere, particularly um, in relation to the UN treaty bodies that review in particular, the human rights treaties. So then um, my next question is, do you think that there is a nation or a group of nations that Australia could model uh, a new refugee policy on um, that would allow it practically to meet its international human rights obligations? Well, um, for obvious reasons, I think Jordan and Scotland are both doing well. Um, I think Canada is doing well. I think Sweden has done well. So modelling on those would be a good start. Um, all we have to do is start with the proposition that they're human beings and then ask how we would want to be treated if we faced the circumstances of those refugees. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, Kate and I have had refugees living with us since late 2001 because Kate had this idea. She was outraged by the Tampa episode and she said, this is just not what Australia is about. She said, most Australian houses have got a spare room. We should set up spare rooms for refugees. The idea being you'd offer free accommodation in people's homes for refugees in Australia. And I said, well, if we want to encourage people to do that, we've got to lead by example. So from late 2001, we've had refugees living at home with us. And the interesting thing about that is I think that was the first time I ever even met a refugee. Um, most, and I've, I've met hundreds of refugees, obviously, because of the work I've done. And my impression is that there's a tiny, tiny group of them, a very small percentage of them at the top end, who are spectacularly good, wonderful people. There's a tiny, tiny group at the bottom end who you probably wouldn't want to spend time with again. And the great bulk in between are just like the rest of us. 
you know, they've got their good bits, they've got their bad bits. They're basically just human beings getting on doing what people do. And if only, if only most Australians could recognise that our approach would be very different. I did some figures a few years ago before mandatory offshore processing came in. And um, I figured out that if, if the, we've got, I think something like 5 million people in Australia who live outside the, the main capital cities. And I figured that if, if refugees who came here, boat people who came here were sent to one or other of those towns, um, even, even if you said, well, look, we'll only allow, we'll only allow um, people to be sent to a town that agrees that they will take refugees. And if one town in 10 agreed to take refugees, um, their population would increase by less than 1% a year. That's how slowly boat people were arriving in Australia. We could cope. We really could. Of course, now we have almost none. We've got a, a backlog of boat people in the um, case. We've got 30,000 people waiting to be resettled. Um, but it's, it's easily manageable. All we have to do is get a government that's prepared to be honest about it. So is that the sort of approach that's being adopted in the examples that you used, Canada and Sweden? Um, I understand that Jordan has quite a large um, sort of refugee camp that you were referring to before. Yeah, um, not, not only that. When I was in Jordan, there were one million Syrian refugees living in the community. It's just people who walk in. They're allowed to live in the community. Uh, now... A million people coming into Australia, I think, might be challenging. Uh, if it was one or 200,000 people a year, I think we could cope without any difficulty at all. And I would say, if I, mean, if I, if I could run government for 10 minutes, the very first thing I'd do is say, OK, anyone who comes here seeking asylum gets accommodation in the community. They do not get locked up. Um, and... I would, I would distribute them to country towns. Country towns are very interesting. I've been to quite a few country towns. And even in the Western District, some of the country towns there are surprisingly agreeable to the idea of having refugees come and stay there. Why? Because the economic circumstances have meant that they've got closed shops all the way down the main street. They would benefit by an increase in their population. They would benefit by having people coming who were willing to work and eager to work. Uh, they need people in those towns, and that's why I suspect that resettling people in um, non-capital city Australia would be a really good way of not only of improving the country economically, but improving those towns. And of course, if they come as families, children settle into towns very quickly. Children form friendships in ways that adults tend not to. And I think it would improve things a great deal. But can I, can I say one, I know one of the questions you were going to ask me at some point was about some episode which uh, 
made a big difference to my attitude. Um, when I did the Tampa case, I came away outraged by what I'd learned from the people I'd met. Um, and I thought, well, if, if we just can persuade the public that what is going, just explain to the public what's going on. Um, as soon as 50% of the public plus one think that what's going on is wrong, it will make all the difference. The politics will shift, you know, because that's the way politics works. And I worked out that if I started talking to the public, it would take six months. I was grotesquely wrong in that. I mean, like, really, really seriously wrong. Um, but apart from, apart from going around barking at people, and after six months, I found I was really only being invited to places where the people... I was invited to speak to already agreed with me. Uh, before that, I think I was a novelty act. Um, in any event, uh, I could have I could have dropped the idea after six months, which would have been early two thousand and two, except for something that happened then. And the reason I'm still firing up about this subject is because of this episode. It was a family who came from Iran. They were not Muslim. They were members of a pre-Christian sect who are regarded by the mainstream Iranians as unclean and who get a very hard time. The, it was a family, mum and dad and two daughters who at the relevant time were aged 7 and 11. Uh, the 11-year-old was sexually assaulted by the Muslim caretaker of her school. Uh, the, the husband, the father, protested about this to the police tried to lodge a complaint. He was arrested, not the caretaker, but the father was arrested. He bought his way out of prison later that night and at two o'clock the next morning, the family fled Iran, never to return. They managed to get to Australia, Christmas Island, at Christmas, they were using people smugglers. At Christmas Island, they were immediately sent to Woomera, which in those days operated you know, in the South Australian desert. And after about 15 months or so, the whole, all of them were doing it really tough, but especially the 11-year-old kid who had stopped eating, she'd stopped grooming herself, she'd stopped caring for herself. Um, and a psychiatrist, I think from Adelaide, heard about it and went to Woomera, which is like four hours' drive out of Adelaide, um, and he delivered what is still the most devastating psych report I've ever read. Um, he made the point that this little kid was in desperate circumstances. He attached to his report a um, drawing that the child had done. It was a bird in a cage. There was a padlock on the cage, and she said she was the bird. Um, he said that this kid needed daily psychiatric help, but back then in Woomera, if you needed psychiatric help, you would get to see the visiting psychiatrist once every six or seven months. So the department, in its infinite mercy, um, when we had Tony Abbott as PM and Peter Dutton as Immigration Minister, I did occasionally kind of wish we could have John Howard and Philip Ruddock back. That's how bad it was. Anyway, um, under Howard and Ruddock, 
the Department of Immigration moved the family from Woomera in the South Australian desert to Maribyrnong in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And there, um, that was so the kid could get, get daily psychiatric help. But for the first few weeks of their stay, nobody came to see her. Not a psychiatrist, not a doctor, not a nurse, not a social worker, nobody. And so for weeks, it was almost as if they weren't there. And on a Sunday night in May of 2002, while her mum and dad and her young sister were off in the mess hall having dinner, this little kid, alone in their cell, took a bedsheet and hanged herself. But she was only little and she didn't know how to tie the knot, so she was still strangling when the family got back from dinner. Uh, they were taken to the mother and the and the 11-year-old girl were taken to the general hospital nearby um, with two ACM guards. So as a matter of legal analysis, they were in immigration detention still. Con Karapanagiotidis, who had only the year before set up the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, was looking after their asylum claim, and he heard about what had happened. He went to the hospital, said good day to the guards who know him pretty well, and... Um, he said he just wanted to speak to the mother to see what could be done. And the guards said to him, no, you're not allowed to see them because lawyers visiting hours in immigration detention are nine to five and they sent him away. He rang me at home at 10 o'clock that night, told me what had happened. And I'm still outraged by that, by that case. That is the episode which locked me in on this issue. Um, I'm glad to say they did eventually get recognised as refugees and they moved to Sydney so they could be with a group of their co-religionists. Uh, outrageous case. To think that we could so badly treat a child that she would try to hang herself and then turn someone away who was simply offering help. Unbelievable. But there we are. That's Australia for you. Actually, it's not. It's the Australian government for you. That's an absolutely incredible story. Um, and just so hard to believe but um as you say given everything that's happened in the last um so many years it's it is not completely surprising um there was of course the murder of reza barati on manus island um there have been rape allegations against security guards on other offshore detention centers and it is it never ceases to astound just uh the extent to which people are being subject to torture on these sites. Yeah. In relation to Razor Barati, I'm glad you raised him. Um, he, uh, when, when he was killed, Scott Morrison, who I think was immigration minister at the time, went public and said that Razor Barati had escaped from detention in Manus and uh, was killed by the locals. The only bit of that that was accurate was the hostility the locals feel towards refugees. Um, I got, a, I got a, a letter from one of, one of Rose's friends not long afterwards, and as it turns out, um, Razor was trying to head back to his room because there was all sorts of uh, scuffling that had broken out. He was intercepted by about a dozen guards including several Australians um, he was uh, he was attacked by them he was prevented from going back to his room 
he was uh, pushed to the ground by some of them. And one of them, who I think was a PNG local, got a rock, but he was, he was a, uh, a guard, got a rock and brought down. The, the, the 12 guards before this took turns to kick Reza Barati in the head and in the torso. Uh, but this bloke then brought an end to it by getting a rock and bring it down hard on Reza Barati's head and that killed him. And people watching knew it killed him because next time someone kicked him, he didn't flinch. Um, the, the, uh, it took months before any charges were brought against anyone in relation to his killing. And strangely, the two Australians who were in the group um, weren't paid enough attention and they were able to get back to Australia. No, nothing has been done to them since they got back. This, this, I think, raises a very uh, interesting point going forward into the future because there, there, the accusation has been made um, by some academics um, that what the government has essentially established is um, a regime which allows crimes against humanity. Um, that is uh, in reference to the definition for crimes against humanity under the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court. Uh, which does have quite specific circumstances in which it can be prosecuted. But the debate, the debate was had about this uh, around 2014. And I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on that. Um, obviously, the, the chance of uh, charges being laid proprio motu by the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court is quite uh, unlikely, given how stretched the International Criminal Court is for resources. But the legal question still has to be asked, can these uh, acts constitute crimes against humanity? Short answer is yes. In fact, I think it was in 2013 or might have been a little bit before that, that I actually put together a, um, a charge to be brought in the ICC um, in which I identified the people who were responsible and the things that were being done. Um, but as you say, the ICC is stretched, it's under-resourced and it's got a lot of very nasty people to take care of. So it went nowhere. But I think, I think there have been maybe half a dozen Australians who've lodged uh, claims in the ICC seeking to have our politicians dealt with. Let me say, I sound as I'm against all politicians, and I think I sort of am in a way. But um, when Kevin Rudd came into prime ministership um, at the start of or end of 2007, start of 2008, um, he did some great things. He, re he emptied out Nauru. He brought them all here. Uh, mind you, after he replaced Julia Gillard, he took a much harder stand on refugees, which I think is a great pity. I lost all respect for Kevin Rudd when that happened. Uh, he was like a little imitation of John Howard. Uh, in fact, it was really he who, um, in his second time round, was he who um, enforced the offshore processing 
So offshore processing simply, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, simply means that if a person, if a boat person, as they would have been called, gets to Australia, um, despite all the turnbacks and so on, they, um, they must be taken automatically to Nauru if they're women or children or family groups, or Manus Island if they're individual men. Uh, Manus Island is part of Papua New Guinea, and uh, so that's, that's where they go. And that, that system was set up, I think, in the middle of 2013 from recollection. It's not good. So we, we said before that um, an ideal refugee policy going forward would be one in which there is no uh, detention, either onshore or offshore, and it allows re uh, refugees and asylum seekers to live in the community um, at least uh, while they're awaiting their, um, the confirmation of their claim to refugee status. Yep. What, what do you see um, as the possible role of law students um, and, in general, university students for ensuring that um, these sorts of things can be progressed? Well... Um get into positions of power and make sure that we get a Royal Commission into the mistreatment of asylum seekers. You're the right generation to do that. Um, in the meantime, volunteering at the groups who look after refugees is a very good way of learning stuff about what goes on and um, probably learning other legal mechanisms as well. And the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre is a very good place for doing that. Um, I know Monash has got the Springvale Legal Centre. I mean, volunteering at community legal centres and trying to get a, a bit of a, a look-in on refugee matters is very smart. Uh, it'll, working at community legal centres, community legal centres, people don't realise how much good work they do. Um, and for law students to volunteer at places like that, you will learn how, how the law works and if that gives you some ideas about what you can do to help refugees, all well and good. Um, but you'll be much better at helping refugees if that's what you want to do, um, if you have learned how the law works. Uh, but certainly volunteering at Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, ASRC, is a brilliant way to start. I think uh, Refugee Legal also it takes volunteers, although I'm not sure about that. I just don't know. But it's worth a try. Great. Um, so let's now move into the Q&A section. Um, I'll first put the option to the audience to have any questions answered uh, right now. So if you have a question to ask, do raise your hand or unmute your mic um, and do feel free to ask it. Um, and perhaps while we wait for, for that, I'll ask a question that's been pre-submitted. Um, and that is, uh, what role does the International Court of Justice play in international refugee policies, if any, at all? Um, that's a good question, and the short answer is I can't answer it. I don't know. Um, 
I would be surprised if they have jurisdiction. One could perhaps imagine a situation where a state party brings a case against another state party in the International Criminal uh, in, in the International Court of Justice for a violation. Would that would that stand a reason? Um, that would make sense. The question is, what's the violation? If it's a breach of the Convention Against Torture because of the way we treat people in immigration detention, that would be that would be great. I mean, it would just be good to see it brought out and to be open. You know, let Australia be exposed for what it's doing. Uh, but whether that would change things at home is another question. Um, but perhaps you could you could argue as well that if a, such a case were brought and the International Court of Justice did find in favour of the state party bringing the case against Australia, that would have quite a marked difference uh, or a marked effect on Australian refugee policy because it would be the International Court of Justice handing down a judgment demanding that the uh, that the um, the breach of the treaty be remedied. Sure, but um, which country would bring such a claim? And and isn't it predictable that Australia's response would be well? You can't depend on trade with us anymore. The old China trick. Yeah. Yes. Okay. You 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 would say that the Australian government would be so inclined. Well, they're doing all this stuff, so yeah, of course. Anything to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Casey, would you like to ask your question, please? Yeah, thanks, Tristan, and thanks, Julian, for coming to speak with us today. I just had a question about um, something I was reading. So I was reading about temporary protection visas, and I was reading that um, the pathway to permanent protection was very much unlikely. And I'm aware that there are probably people in the community, people in our own university community that would be on temporary protection visas and wouldn't be able to um, or would have their future uncertain. And I was wondering what were your insights on that and um, what would be a better process? Um, I think you're going to have to ask that question again because I'm not sure I quite got the point of it and I apologise for that. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you what would be a better process rather than having these temporary protection visas? I'm not too sure what the, like looking at it, I'm not even sure what the point of them are. Um, um, I think the idea of temporary protection visas was simply um, rather than giving a person a protection visa, which used to be the case, um, they've made it temporary so that people have to apply again after three years. Um, I think perhaps the change was done in the hope that circumstances in the home country would change sufficiently in the meantime that we'd be able to get rid of some of them. Uh, that probably hasn't worked. I'm not aware that it has worked. What we don't recognise, as, as members of the public, what we tend not to notice is the terrible conditions that people escape. You know, the really shocking... What constitutes persecution is um, really very alarming. And uh, 
the, I mean, you can imagine you can imagine being a Rohingya in Myanmar at the moment. Uh, they're getting treated shockingly, um, and depending on what happens with the current unsettlement in Myanmar, things may not get better fast. Um, I did want to mention one thing though, and that was the recent release of people from immigration detention in a rather haphazard way. Mostly people who come here on under the Medivac legislation. There's two things to say about that. I'm acquainted with one bloke who was brought here under the Medivac legislation before it was repealed. And he was medevac from Manus to Australia because he had a cardiac problem and PNG did not have the medical resources to fix his cardiac problem. Whilst he had been in PNG, he was assessed as a refugee by the PNG authorities who'd been instructed in the way they do their work by the Australians. He was brought to Australia under Australian legislation, under the Medivac legislation, and was put in detention in Australia. He was in detention for about 15 months um, before he was actually sent over to America because of the um, refugee deal that we did with them in the um, years before Turnbull. Um, the... Uh, by the time he left Australia, he had still not had his cardiac problem dealt with. He was in detention for about 15 months in Australia without actually getting the cardiac treatment that he was brought to Australia to get. Amazing. But back to the removal of people from detention um, was done very recently, ostensibly because of the cost of keeping them in detention which is spectacularly high. Um, but what is not so widely known is that those people uh, are, they're allowed, they're released, they're allowed to work. They're given, I think, $600. And they're not, they do not have access to, many, uh, to um, uh, Centrelink benefits. So they've got $600 to live on, to find a place to live and to find a job, uh, or they're stuck in the community with absolutely no protection at all, no income at all, no right to income support through, um, through Centrelink at all. And I have to say, if that's our idea of generosity, it's a bit of a failure. And think about the cost associated with detention. A few years ago, and I think it was before the offshore processing was brought in as something mandatory, someone did some figures. They worked out that if every boat person who came to Australia was handed $1 million in cash and told to piss off and spend it somewhere else, we would have saved money. Now, it'd be shocking policy, but we would have saved money by doing that. That is spectacular when you think about it. And it makes you wonder, why is it that we can't give a respectable amount of money to those people who are being released from detention? Why can't we give them, for example, 50% of what it costs to keep them in detention so that they don't starve whilst they're looking for a job? 
we have to figure out ways of being mean, even though we're trying to be pretending to be nice. Sorry, that was not actually answering your question, but it was something that occurred to me. Do you have any response to that, Casey? Um, yeah, I think it's definitely related, though. Um, people who are on, um, I guess, release into the community aren't given as like a lot of resources as well and would need to like reapply for the visa. Yeah. I, I don't have uh, a basic problem with the idea of temporary protection visas. I would rather a person didn't have to stay in touch with the immigration department for so long. Um, but, you know, if that was the only thing in the system that I was cross about, it wouldn't be occupying my time so much. Okay. We also have a question from Oliver. So please go ahead, Oliver. Thanks, Tristan. And uh, thanks, Tristan, for like facilitating discussion and hosting. Been uh, fabulous. And uh, Julian, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Um, I've got a, a simple question, yet could be like a long answer. Um, because the sense that I'm getting from this whole discussion that, is that the future of Australian refugee policy still, in essence, rests with, you know, our government and, you know, those who are passing the legislation. So how do we put more pressure on, you know, these people in power to, you know, realise everything we've just talked about and where we need to, what direction we need to take? Like, for example, do you think that protesting, you know, is the most efficient way to put pressure on, on the government, you know, sleeping outside hotels and, and protesting against detention centres? Yeah, I just want to know your thoughts. Yeah, look, I'm sorry, but I think protesting in ways like that is probably a bit last week. Um, it's just not the way to do things, I think. Um, I suspect that the most effective thing your generation can do is to speak to your parents' generation, especially the ones who are against us on this issue, get, get the word through to people who are in a position of influencing the government. Um, your, I mean, I've been immensely impressed with people of your generation who I've met in connection with this because you have a real sense that um, human beings ought to be treated decently. The other thing that's worth looking at is why can we not have a federal Bill of Rights? Leave aside constitutional, that's, you know, constitutional change is a bit too difficult. But, um, you know, Victoria has its statutory charter of human rights and responsibilities. Um, the, ACE, the, uh, the Canberra's got one and the Queensland government has brought one in. So something that makes people think about human rights um, is a good move. And frankly, any respectable, any respectable charter of human rights is going to make what is being done to refugees look pretty bad. But Australians tend not to think in human rights terms because it doesn't suit the government for us to think in human rights terms. Thanks. So those are things you can do, but perhaps not by protesting. But if you must protest, go for it. Look, the, what I said about the politics earlier, if the public at large, 50% plus one of them, decide that what the government is doing is wrong, 
either because it's cruel or because it's grotesquely expensive um, or a combination of those ideas. If, if they come to that position, then I think the government's attitude and policies will change and they'll, they'll work out some dishonest way of justifying their change. But the people who are determining what the government does is my generation and your parents' generation. So speak to them. If they're pushovers, don't, don't trouble them too much. But if they're, if they're on the government side, explain to them quietly and persuasively why they're wrong. The thing is as well with this issue is that for so long it has been a, a bipartisan approach to, to treat refugees in this way. Um, why do you see... How, I mean, that it, I find it still quite astounding that yeah, a centre-left government such as Labor would, would be going for these sorts of policies and being so easily scared um, into following them, into following the, the coalition government's approach as well. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I guess I would question whether you can fairly call them a centre-left party. And you've also, you've also got to factor in the, the strength of the media. I mean, Rupert Murdoch is very powerful in media. And if he decides that one group or another shouldn't form government, well, he'll have his way. So, you know, I mean, have a think about, have a think about the media landscape in Australia. You've, certainly you've got the SBS. Um, how many people get their news and opinions from SBS? Maybe 1%. You've got the ABC. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to pigeonhole, but how many people get their news and ideas from ABC? Very small percentage. What about The Guardian Australia, which is perhaps the nearest thing we've got to an independent, enlightened media outlet? percentage of the people get their news and opinions from the Guardian Australia? I would say probably 1% or fewer. Um, there, are, there are parts of Australia where the Murdoch media are the only source of news for a lot of people. Now, once, you, once you've got that sort of stranglehold, um, you've got a problem because, you know, other, if, without that problem, the government would, wouldn't get away with the sort of dishonesty that we've seen them engage in. And frankly, you know, going back to Oliver's point, uh, if you're going to be speaking to people of a generation who can influence the conduct of the government, um, tell them a few of the really outrageous things that are happening. Tell them how much money, how much of their taxpayers' money is being spent uh, locking people up who've not committed any offence. Tell them that sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's just outrageous when you think people can be disappeared from the community because they happen to originate in another community and they've come here looking for a safe place to be. And okay. by the way, this is off the point a little bit, but it's something that law students need to worry about. I met a bloke recently who... Uh, I only know as Witness J. Not Witness K, as in Bernard Caleri's thing, but Witness J. Witness J, uh, I don't know his real name. I've met him a number of times. 
he worked as best I can figure it out. He worked for ACES for a time. Witness J was secretly arrested, secretly charged and secretly tried and jailed for an offence which he's not allowed to disclose to anyone. Now, the idea that anyone in our community can be secretly charged is horrifying. The idea that they can be secretly tried and jailed is even worse. Um, and yet that happened as a fact. It's astounding. It is. It's horrifying. Um, and as you say, the, the Bernard Cleary case with Witness K is just another incredible, unbelievable um, example of that happening right now in Australia. Um, yeah, well, um, I know Bernard tolerably well. And um, what is not widely known about that case is that um, Witness K went to Bernard to get legal help because he was in difficulty with his employer, the Australian government. Um, while Bernard decided to set up a case in the ICJ, while he was in The Hague, um, he setting up the case, the federal police raided his office and took a number of documents, many of which they would not have been entitled to get. Uh, but he was out of the country, couldn't do anything about it. And uh, he's making a fight of it. Witness K, I think, is probably going to do a deal. But Bernard is fighting the case and good on him. And it really just comes back to this, well, this, this term used by the federal court last month, Kafkaesque. I mean... Yeah. It really is, it's all done in secret, uh, behind closed doors. And, I mean, the government authorities know that this this form of um, system, it, I mean, it doesn't really adhere to the principles that we um, associate with the rule of law or society. Um, and the fact that refugees can be treated in that way and Australian citizens can be treated in that way really um, a biggest belief. I agree. Um, okay, well, let's move to Parker, who has a question. Parker, please feel free. All good. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks, Tristan, for obviously facilitating this. And thanks, Julian, so much for um, being quite confronting as well as really informative. Um, I've just got sort of a question, perhaps it's a bit diminutive, but on in terms of, you know, what the government claims to be the reasoning for their sort of asylum seeker policy, which is, you know, stopping the boats. Um, how would you, Julian, I guess, um, go about attempting to resolve the issue of obviously um, deaths at sea, as well as um, the issue of like preventing people, smugglers taking advantage of refugees? And what would be your sort of policy, I guess, that you would introduce in order to allow for a, a system that is more sympathetic and obviously allows people to come and um, have their, like, their claims um, dealt with expediently and in Australia, um, while also trying to prevent, obviously, the exploitation of people who are trying to seek asylum by um, exploited people smugglers. Yep. Thanks. No, that's a, a good question. Um, there's actually two different problems. One is um, people coming here who are not refugees or might not be refugees, and the other is um, what, what the way they're treated. You know, people people who die on the way here, 
um, or get exploited by people smugglers, that's a problem. Um, I guess in a perfect world, what I'd like to see is Australia backing um, uh, the relevant authorities in countries like Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, setting up a system where people can be assessed as refugees. And if they are assessed as refugees, we fly them from that place to Australia and treat them properly. Um, so you cut out the boat, cut out the people smuggler. Uh, it shouldn't be too hard to do. Um, if, if it becomes very popular, of course, you'd have to share the refugee distribution load with um, other countries like New Zealand, which has done superbly, um, and any other countries who would be willing to take um, people who are already assessed as refugees. The difficulty with it is that, um, first of all, people would probably use people smugglers to get their way down to Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, as the case may be. So that, what do, what do you do? Um, I guess you could have refugee assessment groups somewhere closer to the trouble spots. Whether that would work or not is another question. But the second main predictable problem with what I'm suggesting is that if people get themselves to Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, and they're not assessed as refugees, the fact is, even though I think 94% of boat people arriving in Australia have been assessed by us as genuine refugees, if the last stage of the voyage is safe, that is to say, hopping on a 747 and flying to Australia or New Zealand or whatever, um, if, it, if it doesn't involve a dangerous trip on the ocean, then you'll get more tyre kickers, for sure. And that means a larger percentage will fail in their refugee claims. Uh, and that's a problem for Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, as the case may be. We'd have to figure out some way of resolving that problem for them. Now, throwing a few million dollars at them might be one way of dealing with that. Uh, instead of throwing it at Serco or whoever looks after the detention centres, we could spend millions of dollars pacifying our near neighbours who are going to have to cope with large numbers of failed asylum seekers. Uh, either that or we help return them to the country they've fled. But you can see that is a, a difficulty. But I can't think of any other way of avoiding the final step of the journey being as dangerous as it is because uh, that's the nature of our geography. So good questions, Parker, but um, that's the best I can do. I, as for the, I mean, if you, if, you tolerate, if you tolerate the fact that people are going to die at sea, then I would say if they get here after all of those perils, then whatever else you do, just make sure that you don't mistreat them. Do not treat them like criminals. Do not lock them up for years on end. Parker, do you have a response to any of that? Uh, no, that's like covered everything. Thanks, Julian. I just was interested sort of to hear your thoughts. So cheers. Thanks so much. Sure. Does anyone else have a question to ask? Uh, I guess my question is, um, considering that uh, 
refugee policy is somewhat of a political minefield and whatever policy you have, it will be misconstrued into a fair campaign um, from both sides of politics, it seems. Um, do you see a, a refugee sponsorship policy similar to that that is present in Canada? And I know we have a refugee sponsorship policy in Australia, but I won't go into all the issues um, that are involved with it. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're well-versed on that. Um, do you see a refugee sponsor system similar to that of Canada's um, as a very politically convenient way um, to do more in regards to increasing our refugee intake? Um, yes, I think the, the objection I've got to a refugee sponsorship policy is that I don't see why the public should be asked to spend money directly on sorting out a problem which has been created by the government and which will ultimately operate to the benefit of the government. That said, um, the government already spends so much in taxpayers' money dealing with the refugee situation as it does, maybe that's justifiable. But look, if, 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 a, if a sponsorship scheme is the best we can do, sure, give it a go. I don't see why it should be, actually, because I've yet to be persuaded by anyone that letting refugees simply live in the community, helping them as best we can, you know, spare rooms for refugees might really hit its stride if, um, if refugees are allowed to come here and are allowed to live in the community. Uh, but I think they ought to be treated like citizens of the country, which they will almost certainly become in due time. Okay. Well, Thank you, everyone, for joining in. It's been a really great discussion. Um, we've all learnt a lot, I reckon. Um, I certainly have. Um, and thank you so much, Julian Burnside, for joining us. It's really been such a pleasure. Um, and in, uh, in expression of our gratitude, we'll be making a donation to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. So uh, thank you. Good. That's a pleasure. And, you know, if you're going to make a donation to the ASRC... Also think about some volunteering because they need they need the help. Fantastic. Great. Good on you. Thank you. Thank you all for being interested.